Good morning, good afternoon or good evening, depending on when you're actually watching this. Welcome to another episode of Hypnosis Week. And indeed, this week, I am delighted and privileged to be able to uh, share an interview with you that we're about to do right now with Dr. William D. Horton. And that's H-O-R-T-O-N, not spelt the way my wife is, which is H-O-U-D-H-T-O-N. People get them mixed up. My wife goes crazy, and I'm sure William would the other way around. William is world-renowned as being an addiction specialist, particularly with reference to drug and alcohol abuse, but other substances as well. Uh, he's won arguably more awards uh, than pretty much any other living uh, hypnotherapist or, or psychological therapist out there. And I'm going to let him explain more about all this stuff in a minute. But one thing I do want to mention is that he hasn't just worked with people I would call lay people on the street with these issues. He's actually been regarded within his niche as being leading in the field enough that he's been pulled into psychiatric units, prison uh, rehabilitation units, to help people on the, I mean, that's the real hard edge of substance abuse. So I'd like to welcome to the show, William Horton. Good day, sir. Uh, hi, good day. It's good to be here. And I always love talking to uh, people on this subject of addictions and or hypnosis in the NLP. And it's uh, good to uh, get the word out and, and share the information. Excellent. Well, I noticed that um, you run, I believe you run, because it certainly comes up, it gives that impression on the website, the National Federation of NLP, is that right? Yeah, I I started that in the early 90s because I broke with uh, the way a lot of the NLP trainings were being done, because you don't know it, neurolinguistic programming, which is how you think, not why, and we'll do a demo of that later if you want, and um, but, but you know, one of the things about that technology, we talk about how it makes things faster, more effective and easier to do. And yet back in the 80s, I noticed they kept making the trainings longer, more complicated, more convoluted. And it, I'm like, well, we're, well let's go back to the base. And so kind of like I follow uh, the martial arts, which is, uh, you know, it doesn't matter, uh, you know, that you get your black belt uh, unless you keep studying. And so I, I that's my analogy for hypnosis and NLP trainings. I can train you how to do it pretty quick. If you do not practice, you will not be very good. Kind of like a guy that gets his black belt or girl at 18, never trains. She's not going to be a, a martial artist. And I see that in our field. So mm -hmm. anyway, going back to why I started NFNLP, uh, I make it fast. I, I, I decided to do a very fast, effective, uh, focused training on NLP that people can use not a lot of theory not a lot of dogma you know and i know the people sitting in the room and i'll shut up with this they're not to hear me talk about all these subjects they're paying me to learn hypnosis or nlp that's what i'm going to teach them so i cut out days of the program so uh, i just ended up developing uh, this organization which is i think the second largest out there and the second longest continuous one run by the same people cool so you, you said the others were like more and more adding stuff and yeah i'm i'm very aware of what, what you mean so what would you in terms of if someone's coming to you from scratch for what people generally term the initial practitioner training which i know for example i'm going to mention names i am you don't have to uh any backlashes on me, I accept full responsibilities. I do every week on this show. Uh, I noticed, for example, that Bandler <laughs> will drag his uh, practitioner training seven days, but then you're, you're dragged into this cult of doing your uh, master prac, your advanced master prac, your trainer trainers. And at the end of it, it sadly seems to me that too many people just end up then going out there once they paid those thousands of pounds, done the trainer trainer and start running their own courses when they've never actually done anything in the real world. <laughs> yeah, that's true for a lot of them. And, you know, I had a friend say for years, he thought NLP and somewhat hypnosis was basically like a multi-level marketing scam. You know, we get you in the basics and we sell you the master, then we sell you the trainer. Now we tell you, go get your friends and train them. Kind of like how Amway says, 
come and become a distributor and then go sell all this crap to their friends. And you haven't had the the hands-on skill of actually doing it, right? And and I see that a lot with trainers. It's kind of like to use, and I've got a doctorate in clinical psychology. I'm a psychologist. And it's kind of like the difference between someone that's going to teach you psychology that's had a private practice versus the guy or girl that goes to college, gets their undergraduate, their graduate, their doctorate, and then they become a psych professor. They don't have experience. And I see that in the NLP world, especially even more than the hypnosis world, but I see it there, where you could tell because the trainer, God love them, they love hypnosis and NLP, but you could tell they don't have a lot of experience. So they're telling their their trainer story. They're telling other stories that like, this is not how I did it. You know, somebody asked a question. So, you know, how would you handle someone that has a little bit of bipolar issue with addictions? Well, if the person's never dealt with it, they're going to say, I don't know, most of them will just make stuff up. And if you've had the experience, you can, you could talk about the experience. Um, and so, yeah. And, and, and so I see that where people just take the training and then they're pushed into being trainers. And lately, my big push in the, in the hypnosis and NLP world is we, we've, we've lost the, uh, uh, what's the word I want? We've lost the, the respect for people that just want to have a nice little, right? Somebody wants to, you know, work in their office, whether it's full-time or part-time, and it really help other people. It's kind of like, and also our field has been driven the last 20 years, to be honest with you, by internet, right? Guys that are internet marketers, then they learn the hypnosis and NLP. And then, you know, it's, it's like, you always hear me say, there's somebody, they take their training today, but they're a good internet marketer. You look at their website six months from now. I've been in this business 25 and I in this and it starts pushing the idea that well, if I'm going to have a practice, then the next thing I have to do is I have to have this uh, internet marketing business where I'm going to sell this and I'm going to sell that and I'm going to sell this. What if they just want to actually help people stop smoking, lose weight, improve their games, that respect? And excuse me, but I get on a tire. Hey, no, I, please go for it. I, uh, and and uh, it's well, yeah, well, it's kind of like my my friend's a medical doctor, one of my friends. and. You know, he just, he's a doctor. He, you know, he doesn't want to go build this internet marketing empire. He's a doctor. He likes helping people. Uh, and I also from the psych world, I see it where they respect and admire. That's the word I want. People that are just going to set up a nice little practice and help people change. And sometimes when you go to our conferences, you know, we, we've lost that. It's almost, oh no, I got to be on the road, you know, 20 days a month doing trainings or I'm not real because that's what some people choose to do. So anyway, going back to the, the, how the NLP world got hijacked. Uh, but one thing I have noticed in the last 10 years because of the internet, uh, back in the, in the nineties, NLP trainings were about 21 to 28 days. Now they're down to, uh, mine's about four or five Bandler's is seven. And most people had to condense their trainings because uh, the way people can get information. Yeah. Well, it's partly that. I think also in terms of a lot of NLP courses, certainly the, 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 the longer ones, there's so much stuff in them. Uh, and here I won't mention names out of fairness, but I, I've, done, I've attended as a guest at numerous different people's courses, some famous names, some not. And there's, it's all well and good if it's being marketed to the corporate arena for team building, interpersonal development, all that kind of stuff. But if your desire is to learn how to help people overcome habits, addictions, fears, phobias or whatever, the vast majority of it is bullshit that's of no real use in the therapy consulting room, in my opinion. Oh, no. Yeah. And and also there's different little genres. I would say genres. You can tell I also act. But, um, you know, I like EFT. Right. I like EFT. I like EMDR. Right. But that really, to me, should not be part of an NLP training. It's a different subset. I mean, uh, it's another reason why people that some of the trainings get more and more convoluted. Um, 
because they're bringing in things to me that aren't, uh, you know, NLP. And there's one, and, and some people, uh, there's a couple of people, they'll do a seven day NLP training that includes a hypnosis training, which I think is kind of interesting, right? Mm. Um, because then they, I don't know how they do it. I've never been to their class, but I'm like, interesting, right? Uh, so, yeah, so they bring in things that aren't useful if, if you want to be a practitioner. And to me, an NLP practitioner, much like a basic hypnosis practitioner, means they, you should be trained to be able to sit across from somebody, uh, move toward their goals, whether it's stop smoking, lose weight, improve their golf game, work with an addiction. And also to this issue, you know, uh, I slam our industry about, which is I can fix everything. Just come see me. Right? And I, you don't see that in the medical or the psychological or the social work field. You know, you, you know, like I don't work with kids. I, I just, I just don't work with kids. It's not my specialty. Not that I couldn't. It's just, I will refer you to someone that works with children. Right. Mm -hmm. So so I, you know, for a while we were starting to see that in the NLP world. And I hope it makes a so where bring out to someone, you know, like if I knew you and you really like working with kids, why don't I refer them to you? Because you know what you're doing. I get a lot of people that refer addictions to me because that's how I got in this field. That's what I've done for 35 years. You know, over 35 years, it's kind of like I'm the default guy where uh, hypnotists, NLPers, and therapists, if they have an addiction problem, they end up calling me. <laughs> well, that doesn't surprise me. Cause, I mean, if the viewers oh. were to go for uh, on Amazon, for example, and type in William Horton, and Horton's H-O-R-T-O-N, and do a search on Amazon, they'll see that you have got tons of books out there now they are mainly to do with addictions and substance abuse uh, and solutions to that um but i also noticed interestingly you've got a couple that are more um theme wise at least um out there under mind control you mean like this Yeah, well, and it, it actually, it comes from, you know, there's a lot of people, they want to learn hypnosis or NLP because they have an interest in, and there's, when I say the term mind control, I, some people could go off on a tangent, but it's just a word. But, you know, they want to uh, figure out how people really think. And for some people, they'll default to the idea of mind control. And, you know, just like psychology, you know, and psychiatry. There's all the research, it's easy to look up, that 50% of the people that become psychologists or psychiatrists go into the field because they think there's something wrong with them, and they think getting this education will fit, fit them. I argue it's even higher in the NLP and the hypnosis, right, that people come into a class because there's something wrong with them. They don't want to go to a therapist. They think, I'll take this training, right? And it will fix if it's a if it's a competent trainer that understands that that really you know a lot of room is here for self development and you can kind of figure out which people are so you can help them get what they want and then the people that really want to become like practitioners you can help them get what and so I have the book mind control because I find it fascinating that how do you, how do you get people to take action how do you get people to take action in their best interest where you don't really know sometimes that you're helping them, or they don't know that you're helping them, right? Which is like, some people would call it like covert hypnosis or waking hypnosis, which is all marketing, you know? And so, you know, I love those topics. You know, uh, the one that gets me is like, I, I, I had an article I wrote and kind of turned it into a little book. Uh, and it was basically, um, you know, secrets of the cult leader. <laughs> that one got a lot of a lot of attention. Yeah, and, and and it, you know, and it's like okay, but I think it's good information to have so you see it happening in the real world. And God knows, right now, I'm not going to get political, but we're seeing it. 
in a lot of the political where, you know, they're not just politicians. Basically, they're cult leaders in my country. And dare I say, you are a cunt. Well, I couldn't agree more. <laughs> uh, let's be honest. What's the difference between... Um, if people are seeing this in years to come, to put some historical context, today we're recording this on the 13th of January 2020. So you can always Google search if you're watching this in decades to come. But what's the difference between Donald Trump, the current president of America, and uh, Boris Johnson, the current prime minister of England? And do I mean that as a joke or as a question? Either way... The answer, frankly, is I think just the accent. The yeah. bubbles, like you say, um, yeah. it's so yeah. cultish now. Well, and you know, uh, uh, I forget what the the from because usually I take an idea, give credit, and tweak it a little bit. And this one, you know, it's a, there's like a, and, and when you look, we'll just talk about that a little bit, like in what Boris Yeltsin's done in, in, in the UK is same thing Donald Trump do, did here. And a little bit going back, Barack Obama did it in 2008, which is they follow a five-step program, you know, how to get people to do this. Number one is you encourage their dream, you know, and you figure out who you're targeting. The other thing is they're very, Boris is good in your country, is good here uh, and was good back to Clinton you know all the good leaders they know their target they don't worry you know white males primarily you know much like Boris was you know so that's his target he's not worried about the far you know the far left because you know he didn't care so what what you do is you have your target and you go well what's their pain and then you encourage their dreams you dream of a life like your your dad had. You dream of bringing back those old industries. You know, I saw Trump do this brilliant, like we'll bring back coal. Well, no, coal's dead. You know, yeah, we'll bring back the auto jobs. No, and it's not immigrants taking the jobs. It's robots. You know, and but yet he fed that dream, and then he he justified it. It's it's not your fault. So. But to justify their failure, so it takes them. It's not my fault, right? It's not your fault. You didn't learn about robots and become a some, right? Or you didn't move out of West Virginia where the coal mines have been dying for 35 years. But so you justify their, you know, you 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 justify that it's not their fault. Then you confirm their suspicions and you blame it on another group, whether it's immigrants, which they're doing both of our countries, uh, young people. You know, anybody that don't look like, 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 right? And then you say, I'm like, you know, I've been there. And that's one thing I can never figure out with a platinum spoon, right? The man takes a crap on a gold toilet and he's got these guys in West Virginia living in a trailer going, he's just like us, you know? And I know I've seen that, you know, in, in your country with Boris, it's like all these dock workers he's just like us yeah i don't think so you know? yeah precisely. But, so and and so, so then they have a common enemy so when they sell them on those points you know encourage their dreams justify their failures confirm their suspicions allay their fears i'm like you and then you've created a common enemy they'll follow you and then once they buy in they don't want to leave even when they're presented evidence it's like guy's not what you think or so that's, that's why i like and i think people should learn this kind of stuff because it, it, when you see it, it it's fascinating whether it's a political thing or it's or a social movement you know and just think about all the um industries that know how to create these cult-like things whether it's harley davidson here in my country you know our guys are a special group Right. Mm -hmm. uh, Apple computer. Yeah. You know, the people that will never wear Wrangler jeans, they'll only wear Levi's. Right. They're jeans. <laughs> and yet. So, you know, it, I just think this stuff is fascinating. That's why I write those things, I, you know. So it's fascinating.
I, I do believe, Lord, that actually does kind of, um, you were saying, you know, even when they end up getting presented with evidence that what they came to believe or manipulated to believe is wrong, that they won't face up to it and accept it. As we call that in, well, as you know, I'm just saying this for the listeners who may not know, in psychology, that's called cognitive dissonance. Uh, the idea that to accept that evidence would mean they'd have to admit to themselves they were fooled and deceived in the first place. And that could be very painful and bad for the ego and the self-esteem. So rather than that, they'd sooner argue and dismiss it and find excuses why that new evidence isn't true or just plainly ignore it rather than have to face up to that short-term pain of, I got fooled, I got sucked in. Now, I'm going to make a statement now, and you please do disagree with me. Do not be nice for the sake of it, okay? That's not what this podcast is about. This is about your <laughs> truthful, genuine opinions. But my opinion, and I have nowhere near as much hands-on direct experience of treating people with addictions as you have. Um, yes, I've been in hypnosis 30 years, but I do other stuff as well, whereas you are mainly addiction man. So, but my conclusion is this, that in theory, I believe somebody could wake up in the morning who was formerly a cocaine habit, addiction, you know, and say to themselves, enough's enough, I'm not going to touch it anymore. And that is all they would need to do, pretty much, and they would never have to touch it again. Unfortunately, at some point, somebody who knew them as, in this case, let's say, Jonathan Royal, former cocaine addict from the early to mid-90s, which, by the way, isn't hypothetical, that's true, it's in my autobiography, um, may have woken up one day and gone, enough's enough. I, I may be earning mega money doing all these uh, shows in England and TV stuff, but I'm spending as much, if not more, on the celebrity lifestyle, drinking, cocaine, and all this, that, the other. And I just went, enough's enough. And it was like a wake-up call. And I thought, we're not going to bleep this out. But I thought, fuck it. I don't care what people think about me. I didn't care when I was doing the drugs. So why the fuck should I care if I stop? So I did stop, but I did encounter, and this is why I came to this conclusion, and it's how I approach clients, is that I think that they could sort themselves out as quickly as that. But at some point, they were bumping to someone who knew them when they had the addiction. But it was a family member who didn't approve or someone from the circle that joined in with it. And they'd go, I notice you're not taking cocaine anymore. Or you're not drinking, uh, you know, as much whiskey as you did or, or whatever it may be. Or you're not smoking anymore. And the person would go, well, no, I woke up one day. I decided not to touch it anymore and I haven't since. To which that person, especially if it was a family member who didn't approve, was going to go, Jonathan, in my case, why the fucking hell didn't you just do that sooner then? If it was that easy to stop, why didn't you bloody do it? And there is no logical, rational answer to that. So sooner or later, the person would feel bad about having stopped. And that would cause to remove themselves from that pain of, I'm getting attacked for having stopped now and not doing it sooner. They would relapse, as we call it, so that they could prove it wasn't that easy to stop. So when they bump into that person again, they no longer feel attacked. They go, look, I, I, you know, I've, I'm sorry, but I've, I've gone back to it and it wasn't as easy as I thought. Whereas if they go and see a therapist like yourself, um, they go through an important seeming ritualistic process, whether that's hypnotherapy, tapping themselves on the face, acupuncture, it doesn't matter. It's got to be an important seeming ritualistic process from a credible perceived authority figure, ideally an expert in a particular field rather than someone who says they're a jack of all trades. Then it becomes even more believable. They go through that and they leave. When they bump into that family member, in this scenario, the family member goes, I know you're not taking drugs or you look better, you're not drinking alcohol, whatever it may be, or you haven't, we've been stood here and now we're talking, you've not lit up a cigarette. They can go, I've stopped. And when the person goes, well, why didn't you do it sooner then? They can go, oh, I've tried. But it wasn't until I saw this expert, William Horton, 
or Jonathan Royal or whoever, and had to have this process done that then I was given the tools to be able to. And the person then can't be attacked, so it's like an invisible force field, a shield for them, to give them permission to change. And I genuinely believe that the biggest thing we do as therapists is give people an environment to change, permission to change, and kind of a, a safety shield for the to stop themselves from relapsing because they can't be attacked by people for not having done it sooner because they hadn't got the help from you or me or someone else before. What do you make of that? No, that, that makes sense because, you know, when you look at psychology and, and you know, when they study things, uh, one of the things that's always been fascinating uh, when you look at, like, like psychological especially is 30% for most placebos are about 30, there's about like this, 30% effective. And let's say like Xanax is only 38 or 40%. So it's only an 8% difference, right? Of course, the difference is the placebo doesn't have side effects. This other stuff does. But like you said, it's about A, a ritual, A, permission, A, paying into something. You know, years ago, I talked to a guy because I did them. And they stopped smoking seminars. They were real big in America in the 90s at yeah. the holiday ends and stuff. And this guy said, you know, I'm convinced the people walk in, throw $50 on the table. If I just went, you're fixed. The same amount would quit as set through the two hour seminar. Right. I agree. And, 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 and there's something about, about that. You know, I've went through a ritual. It, it, it's all of that, you know, and, you know, and addiction is also too. everybody forgets, you know, I used to be a real hard, I used to have a totally different outlook on addictions than I have now. You know, it's probably changed about 30, 40%. It's changed because the evidence I see in the real world, right? Uh -huh. And one of the things that, that, that they've always known is if uh, a lot of people that have an alcohol and drug problems in their 20s, about 30% will quit later in life with no intervention. They don't have to go to AA or Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, a therapist treatment. They just, it's almost like they age out of it. Part of that is one day they wake up at like 37 and go, I can't do this shit anymore. You know, I can't stay out all night drinking and, and you know, doing a few bumps and, you know, my body just can't take it. So they just kind of age out. So there's, there's that. Uh, and then, you know, there's the people that need a little bit extra. And I think for a lot of the addictions, some of it does, and this sounds shade, psychological, it can go back to their, to, to not just how they were raised, but their lifestyle. Because let's say a guy's a bar drinker, whether he's a professional or a blue collar, you know, and for 15 years, every day after work, he goes to the pub, right? And has a few, has a few, right? Now he decides he needs, well, and the guys he drinks with at the pub are also a lot of Mara's co-workers. Yeah. Now, he decides to quit drinking. Who the hell is he going to hang around with? Right? Is he going to go to the pub and drink Coke? I'll on it. This one, there's a floor for me. I've never long term. Right. I, you know, it's like, ah, you know, and I think one of the reasons for that is the people that are still drinking don't want you to quit. Because maybe they want to quit, but they don't know how, and you quit, and so it's easier to, you know. So in that case, things like the 12-step programs, Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, gives you a place to learn how to make especially someone that starts right or using in their teen years, that's their whole social structure. Do you know how to have fun and not drink? Do you how to know how to have fun and not, you know, get a little high or whatever it is that you do? Some of some of that is is a training exercise, and you need some models. You have no models. You, you know, I'll just tell my own story there. I I didn't know people could have fun unless they had. A, I didn't see it growing up. Right. Uh, so how do I learn how to have fun? Right. And so, you know, so there's there's some interesting things going on. But one of the one of the things we're seeing change in the addiction world 
is because of the newer generations, they are not joiners. You know, the millennials and you know, basically people under, they're not joiners like generations before. You know, my parents, your parents, you know, after the war, you know, they joined like my dad joined the American Legion, the VFW, you know, I went in Vietnam time. I joined the American Legion, the VFW. It's kind of that. Now our kids, <clears throat> my daughter, I've ever set foot other than when they visited my dad when he was still alive, because they're like, why would I want to go? They're joiners. So let me, and that transfers to even like things like AA or NA. Uh, the younger, they might go there long enough to get clean and sober. They don't want to keep coming. So, and plus now you can get all this information like we're doing right now. So the information you used to have to go to a meeting and sit there and get, now you can get online. So the whole treatment world is changing. Go ahead. Let me ask you about 13 steps. Okay. Because I, 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 I personally believe 13 steps, uh, you sort of AA um, <laughs> approach, gamblers are not, well, they're all, they're all 13 step programs. I think 12, I, 12, 12 steps, sorry, why am I calling it 13? Anyway, 13 step steps. programs, the I think. Uh, 13 step is when you hit it. <laughs> yeah, I think they're fundamentally flawed because all of it is about the first thing, hi, my name's whatever, and I'm a recovering fill in the blank, recovering alcoholic, recovering gambler, whatever. By the moment you say you're recovering, they would argue that that's positive, you're on the right path. I would argue that you are giving yourself a massive suggestion that you are not yet fully sorted. Um, and that it should be our intent as a therapist to give uh, the client the tools to be able to feel that they are in control and that they are a former, maybe, former alcoholic, but that is categorically saying to themselves when they say, I used to be, is categorically saying they aren't anymore, or is saying I'm recovering is a suggestion that it's not sorted yet. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll reframe it in my way. First of all, one of the biggest things people get wrong about the 12-step program, they say it's about powerless. If you read the actual step, your power, I'll use AA, but they're all the same. They just change whatever the addiction. We, um, we, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol. Our lives had become unmanageable. That's the slow, but I'm not powerless. It, it's past tense. It's not saying you're powerless right now. It's saying I was powerless. And the original idea of it was if you put that substance in your body, you're, you're pretty much the game's over. Right? So mm -hmm. you're off to the races. So once you're, you know, sober, you, you haven't drank for a day or two, at that moment, you're not powerless. But if you put it in your system, then says we were powerless over alcohol. Our lives had become unmanageable, right? And so it's past 10 other steps. Most of them are past. And um, the, uh, uh, you know, and then a lot of the steps are actually kind of psychologically brilliant, like the four step where you do an inventory of yourself and you, you kind of look at your life the way it is, all this other stuff. In fact, the whole journaling psychology thing some of it spun out of the uh, uh, the 12-step program approach to how to make changes because you journal. Uh, but uh, the other thing about the identification, whether you say like, hi, I'm Will, I'm an alcoholic, or hi, I'm Will, I'm a recovering alcoholic. Um, well, it's, you're, you're an expert in language too. It's what that person is attaching to it. Some of it is an identity. The same way my wife would tell somebody she's Catholic. You know, it's just, it becomes, I, I would, and I'm, after all these years, I still say I'm Will, I'm an alcoholic. The re reason is it's to, to remind me, I can, oh, buddy, can, I cannot drink successfully. All right. And so it, to me, it's just to remind myself, you know. Uh, oh, 
okay, in that context, I can totally get that because in that context, if you don't drink alcohol now, some people would look at that, well, that means you're definitely not an alcoholic. But in the context of you knowing within yourself that you couldn't like just have one or two could it lead to, <laughs> you know, a total blowout, then yeah, okay, I can see in that context that it's not a negative suggestion. However, there does seem to be this element of its dependency with with these things. People seem to be in these programs for life. Surely, because I, I, you know, I, I know people that I've seen both as clients, but more so on a observing, I would never get involved with them on the treatment level because they're family or friends, who in the past have indulged in alcohol or drugs or smoking or whatever, now, well, with smoking, they don't smoke. Although now and again, when somebody's died at uh, the funeral, I have witnessed one or two of them having, you know, a few hours that evening of weakness where they end up probably state-dependent memory, learning and behaviour related, end up having a cigarette or two. But the next day they don't, and they, they don't smoke again. And I know people who now will go out and they'll have, albeit they make it a habit that they will only drink, and they'll only drink maybe a couple of glasses of wine when they're out with the wife or husband having a meal in a restaurant. But they categorically won't drink at home because for them, that's what feels comfortable. So they don't get. But there are there are people out there who can get stuff under control, aren't there, as well, is what I'm saying. Well, yeah, well, and, you know. But also, too, to me, I look at addictions that the drinking or or the drug use or the gambling, or the sex is, is a is a symptom of something else. Huh? Right. So if you just remove the symptom, whatever's driving, that's why I've seen people do this a lot. They'll quit to drink and then you run into them six months later, they gained 100 pounds. Right. Huh? Or you, you use you see it with smokers. They just quit smoking and now they gain all this weight, right? When technically, if you understand the theology behind it, when you quit smoking, you should drop it because then your body starts processing uh, uh, sugars differently yeah. and you got the energy to move. But, uh, but we do know from the research that, and this gets tricky unless you're tra- trained in it, <clears throat> that some people are genetically predisposed to certain problems, alcoholism or, you know, drug addiction. But when I say that and people go, so it's genetic. Well, all a genetic predisposition means, of course, is if you don't drink, it's not going to fire off that gene. You know, Uh, if someone's allergic to shellfish, if that's their genetic predisposition, if they don't eat shellfish, they're fine. Yeah. So, so there, so, but if it's a genetic, predisposition yeah there there there's interesting concepts there but also to people that like really get involved in like a 12-step program uh i'm i'm a i'm a i'm a very big defender of it for one reason and i'll use a lot of friends i had when i lived in the midwest uh uh you know where it was real, real steel industry auto plan go to the you know the bar after work having a few beers with his friends going to the baseball games now he quits drinking right so he's lost that group of right it's just it's not the same uh he doesn't want to be there because they're drinking they don't want him there so he's so he's looking around you know in that world i can just tell you from being in it just like same in the military you know if you and i were hanging out and we're not talking about sports right like football, my, you know, whether it's American football or, you know, communist football, like you guys play in England, <laughs> you know, or soccer, or we're not talking about babes or anything like that, right? We got really, nice. so people, men especially, they go into an AA meeting or an NA meeting, and suddenly there's guys there talking about their feelings. They're talking about being afraid. They're talking about sharing. And, you know, how do I do that? You know, they may be like, and I'll just tell my own story. You know, all of a sudden, like 24, I'm like, after being in the military and doing some other, I'm like, I've never heard men talk this way. Yeah. This 
other people felt like I felt. So, so you know, I've known a lot of guys that, that, that sobered up and, you know, after about five, six, seven, eight, 10, 12 years, they don't really go to that many meetings. I have other friends that go a lot, especially after they retire, because they're giving back. You know, they get to sit there and share their experience, strength and hope with someone else. And I would say, and this sounds weird, but I would think it's pretty goddamn arrogant of me to tell that person, nope, you should stay home and watch TV. You know, you shouldn't go to this meeting because now you're addicted to meetings. Well, I've I've never known anybody that got arrested for driving under the influence of Starbucks because they had too much coffee at a meeting, right? Uh, And yet, so, but it's a place to go and share and hang out and to give back. And we all know it's a connection issue. You. If it, yeah. and in my case, I couldn't connect with my family. I couldn't connect with those old. I couldn't connect with people relying not being able to drink successfully. That's the way I like to, and not knowing why. I could see you go out and have a couple of beers. You're fine the next day. I go out and have a couple of beers. I end up in jail because I don't stop at a couple of beers. You know, I always say I'll. Alcohol makes me break out, you know, doors, windows, eventually my own teeth. Uh, you know, I, I break, and then I end up uh, in handcuffs, uh, <laughs> things like that. So, so there's some other reasons that for some people, the meeting fit quite well. And I, I think, no, I can, I can agree with you this. there that in terms of the support, because um, if, you're, if you're changing your environment, obviously, if you a heroin addict may, well, Quite often, there are some quite high-functioning heroin addicts, but generally speaking, get into a certain social circle and don't really know anyone else. So when they are, you know, leaving that behind, if they carry on socialising with those people, it's inevitable that, 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 that they're going to relapse. Uh, they've got to change their environment, otherwise. So in that regard, the support thing, I totally, totally agree with that. But uh, and whatever form of addiction therapy uh, a therapist watching this does, it is obviously important to ensure that the client's got a support network around them that takes them away from those triggers that used to bother them in the past and gives them what they need to remain as the new them. That I completely agree with. It's just maybe it's just a perception that I've allowed myself to fall for from tv shows and movies and stuff that these uh multi-step programs are very much almost cultish um in which case i apologize for coming to that conclusion but that's the way but the thing is you don't you yourself don't run these step programs do you you you, you've got other ways of helping people in your sessions and with what you do tell us a bit about what you do with a class if i came with an addiction what would you do well, first, I would, you know, get some, how does it manifest? How, you know, when did you start, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, what's going on underneath it? Uh, and I always say I, I help people with or without the 12-step program, right? Um, they can, they, I, they could go to meetings or not go to meetings. Usually, to be honest with you, especially if it's alcohol and, and, and or certain drugs, uh, I ask them to go to uh, several of the 12 step meetings for a couple of reasons. One of the reasons is I'm checking compliance. Somebody calls me up, okay. Will, Doc, I really need to quit this. I'll do anything. So you come in my office, okay, Johnson, great. Okay, we're going to do these sessions. I just need you to go to one or two AA meetings over the next week till we come back. I'm not doing that. Well, yesterday on the phone, you said you would do anything. So you lied. And I would tell, I'd look people in the eye and they go, well, well, I'm like, either you will or you won't. I'm not saying you're going to go for life. I, I just want you to go there. Okay. I like that. And I so they, like that concept. Nice. Right. And they may have a false interpretation like you do. I watched, you know, I've been going to 12 step meetings for, for way over. I don't even want to admit it. 30, 38 years. And, and because I've been sober 35, I still go. I still go occasionally. So it drives me crazy when I see what, like you'll watch a TV show or a movie on what a, what the pro, what 
you could tell whoever wrote it had never been in a meeting. That's all right. It's like, no, they don't work that way. Well, full they, disclosure, they, they, I've, ne I've never been in one of the meetings. Full disclosure for viewers. So in this regard, what uh, William is saying is far more reliable than what I was well, saying before, in fairness. Yeah, well, and it's like, you know, it's like, you know, I, so they just have a, you don't know what you don't know. And so you're going to default to, well, I saw this TV show where they were doing this, they were yelling at people. I'm like, well, that's not, so I asked them to go, right? And then they get a different, because this is different than what I thought. These, the first thing people notice when they go to a 12-step meeting, whether it's our, Narcotics Anonymous, Alcoholics Anonymous, Gamblers Anonymous. Every I, I've only been to the mostly AA, by the way, but all these other meetings. Uh, the one thing I can tell you that freaks people out, never been in there, is the amount of laughter. Okay. You know, it, it, and it's it, and the bonding, right? Mm -hmm. And and things like that, right? And a lot of times people walk in, especially if they're just coming to see me too. They have a lot of shame, guilt, and remorse because they're not reaching out for help because this shit's going well in their life. <laughs> you know? And so when they walk to like a 12, they meet other people that have, have basically almost destroyed their lives with alcohol, drugs, or whatever it is. So they find out they're not alone. Even if they don't go back after a couple meetings, they know in the back of their heads, I'm not the only one fighting this battle. Because when you watch TV or movies, whether it's my country, your country, any, anywhere, you know, outside of parts of Asia and the Mideast, you know, every commercial is beer. This isn't beer, it's water, but it's a beer commercial. It's a, you know, and on all the TV shows, everybody's having a drink, you know, um, uh, 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 right. And they did the sequel and the whole thing, shit you not. I mean, Somebody told me that, and I went and watched it. I'm like, like all the really cool guys, one guy's named Tequila, one guy's named Scotch. And basically, it was like they were the good guys because they drank, and they were trying yeah. to take down a drug dealer. You're a hypnotist in an NLP here. That, that was like so damn blatantly, uh, you know, like, see, I'm okay. I'm only drinking myself to death. I'm not, not doing drugs. <laughs> so, so you find out you're not alone. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned self-blame. Um, I sum up as self-blame, shame, guilt and regret as being like barriers to people um, being able to say goodbye to the things that used to bother them because of that conflict that maybe, you know, if people did say to them, why didn't you do this sooner? That can push the buttons of, yeah, why didn't I? Which is the self-blame, shame, guilt and regret. Whereas coming to someone like your good self at least they can go, well, I tried, but I needed the help of somebody like William. Um, and then they can be empowered by admitting that they've had to seek help. But by the same time, it's removing that self-blame, shame, guilt and regret. People can't push the buttons anymore. I think that's a key part of what you do. Yeah, yeah. And and also then look at like what, you know, especially most people when they reach out for an addiction, help. If they make today, I guarantee you they've been thinking about it. I can't totally guarantee. I would surmise yeah. they've been thinking about this for a long, long time, right? And is because we see it every day you know like you may, there's always someone that just wakes up and goes damn it i'm not doing this anymore right they throw down the cigarettes or they put down the beer they they take out the needle they're done right and if they, and usually what can happen like in a family dynamic uncle joe just quit drinking he didn't go to therapy he didn't go to meetings he just quit drinking why can't you right yeah. which adds a whole different level well i'm not uncle joe right <laughs> um it's like so there's that, right? So, so when people call, okay, and I and we start working, I think getting get, getting them to, to put down the drink, especially if they show up and they're they're paying and all that, they're active. I think putting down the drink is the first part. Then we can look at why did you keep doing it when you knew it was a problem? Yeah. What was driving it? What what you know? Is it fear? Is it you know? Is it shame? Uh, 
is it the imposter syndrome? You know, you know, like I, I don't really feel like I'm a good dad. So I feel so bad about that because I don't know what I'm doing. <clears throat> you know, I end up drinking and then they find out, guess what? Almost every dad goes through that at some point because that little kid didn't have a user's manual. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and, and so so then we can look at building, whether it's ego strength whether it's getting rid of the fear, whether it's looking at this, whether it's just giving them the ability to have the courage to go out and make new friends and do different things. Because I still always say, uh, you may not rise to the level of your dreams, you will always fall to the level of your peers. So if you want a better life, you need better peers, right? And so, you know, if you want to be a successful hypnotist, you probably need to go to conferences and things like that and start hanging around with successful hypnotists, you know? Um, so if you want a better life, you got to hang out with different people. And some of us, because of our family of origin, or maybe because of the way we work, and that's, you know, most, most we're lucky, you and I, most people, like 70% of the people, almost all of their friends are work, they're either family or work related. So now, you know, if they want to change their lives, where do they get these peers, the, the next level up? So that's, you know, we can help them, like, figure out how to do that and how to, how to how to approach it you see just as you said that oh it makes a lot of sense as you say that i now see more how i still think there's the odd bit i don't entirely agree with but i still but i'm seeing more clearly how the 12-step programs are beneficial because some people may not have a support network that they can turn to and that will at least fill that gap Right. And then and that's why you see people like go to the 12 step program. And then after a couple of years, then their family sees them. Right? And then um, and then they don't say, well, you, they just begin to see you differently. Right. And then it's easier. They become more supportive. Sometimes it's through. Ads, because they ads, actually believe uh, that you've become that person now that doesn't touch the stuff, whereas they were doubting before, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And and then it's kind of like in our field, I always say, too, it's like someone goes to hypnosis training, right, and they learn hypnosis. How long does it take your family to re to begin to be comfortable with you being a hypnotist if it wasn't in your world before, right? I My friend's a medical doctor, right? And it's about how he was home. He lives in Florida, and he was back where he was from. Oh. One of his, his uncles, he went, get, I'll go check his medical right if it's okay. And one of his aunts turned to him and goes, I won't use his name, so I'll just call him, come on, you're Billy. And he's like, you know, he was chief of staff of a hospital for a while. It's like, but they didn't see him that way. They saw him as little Billy that grew up in this little town that joined the Navy So he didn't because he didn't want to work in the auto plants or the coal mine, right? So and then he became a you know medic and then went to school and became a doctor. So sometimes it, your family can't see you different until they finally do see you different. And so, like you say, sometimes that takes time. To, then I, you know, oh Jonathan doesn't drink, didn't he used to? And they'll go, oh, I was a long time. And usually your family will go, he grew out of it or she grew out of it, right? And you're like, that's okay. They didn't know you went to therapy or you had to work at it or. Yeah. So, yeah. Excellent. Um, yeah, I mean, that makes complete sense. So if, if, we're getting close to the end. I mean, an hour just flies by. We've got kind of like five, six minutes left. And I'd like you to tell the viewers, because uh, there's lots of thought-provoking stuff there we've covered. But I like the, I've, I've already mentioned if they go on Amazon, they can find your books. But where should they – I will put your website address underneath this video so when it goes out, they'll be able to click straight through. But please tell them where they should be looking for your books, uh, what your websites are, uh, what kind of stuff you've got coming up uh, so that they can look into you more, William. Okay. Well, you know, one of the things I've done the last couple of years, I, I put together a, a dick protocol that people do online, right? And it's called AAC. Solve, just a word solve.com. 
And it stands for all addiction solved. It's not alcohol. It's aasolved.com. And, and, and it, it's basically to begin to change their thinking about drinking. And because in our culture, in my culture and in your culture, there's a lot of professions, there's a lot of people that really can't go away to treatment. Because if they do, it would ruin their career. If you're, you know, the one that always jumps out, if you're a pilot and you go to treatment, you lose your flight status. Right. right. Okay. Right. And of course, if you're if you work in the in the federal government here, I'm sure they there, and and you might lose your. So would you want to go to treatment and basically be told, you know, the CIA, hey, we're glad you're sober, but you're fired because we can't use you anymore, right? Yeah. And so there's people that might want to get help that can't quite go away to treatment or show up for treatment yet. Right. So it's an online people can do it or they just, you know, I there I've had a lot of housewives do it because they don't want people to know that they were, you know, drinking four bottles of wine a day. So that's why I developed that program. And that's AA solved. Um, they can also find me at Dr. Will Horton, D-R-W-I-L-L-H-O-R-T-O-N dot com. I'm redoing that site and it has like my books and and and, and that and other ways to get in touch with me. Because one of the interesting things that, I, that I'm excited about is what we're finding out how your brain really works and how it's tied into every part of you, you know, uh, that is changing how we look at, or at least myself. Uh, it's like I, there's a current book out I tell people they should read. It's called The Body Never Forgets. And it's about how your body encodes things like trauma, shame, guilt and remorse right mm -hmm. but especially trauma and shame and to me it's a fascinating subject the reason it's a fascinating subject is shame itself was developed to keep you alive because for most of history if you got shamed and you got thrown out you did something so bad that the group the tribe the family or the village threw you out it was shame that is actually encoded into our dna and it's to keep you in line to develop a, a civilization, right? And so that's why, but it's a, it's a word that has all these powerful uh, uh, contexts with it, right? So that's what we, but now we know it's, it, it actually goes down your vagus nerve and it's Oh, just slightly froze then. True, a head thing. Oh, okay. We're back again. We're back there again. There we go. Okay. You've got vase on nerve. Yeah, it goes down and it's a gut response. The other interesting thing, and I love talking about this, is when you, or any highly charged emotional event, negative, um, your, your broca's area of your brain shuts down. That's the area that develops words. It's why when you go through a tr supercharged emotional event, you can someone say, well, what was it like? And you'll tip a You go with big trauma. No, we keep buffering. That car wreck. Even if you need to describe, you know, when I, because I was so into my body at that time, you know, with experience, that part of my brain, blood quit flowing. Because it said you need to be present in this, you know, and and kind of tied into the sports guys, right? Whether after a bell, they're they're so happy they can't put more because when they're playing the game, they're not thinking. That part of their brain shuts down, right? And it's the same with like when you go when you get post traumatic stress disorder. And people, and you ask somebody, and that's why therapy doesn't work for post-traumatic stress. Talk therapy does not work because the people cannot put words to it because there are no words to describe it. They they didn't have words in their head, so then they have to disassociate, and that it's why yeah, yeah, as much as they try to say talk therapy will help post-traumatic stress, it will not. They it has to be a visceral response. And with hypnosis and NLP, we can bypass some of that and get them to do, do some really cool stuff. So, 
to me, all health is getting fascinating. You've been around 30 something years. They talked about for 30 something years. We now have the science to say yeah. this is how it works. Uh, in, oh, yeah. I mean, I think they've only just scraped the surface. Well, thank you ever so much, William, for your time. It's been a pleasure. Everybody who is watching, the links will be below the video to William's websites. As he mentioned, Dr. Will Horton, that's H-O-R-T-O-N dot uh, com and A-A Solved, which is S-O-L-V-E-D, A-A Solved dot com. But the links will be there that you can just click on when this video is live. Please do search him out. Look what he's got to offer. And bear in mind, if he's been able to share these thoughts and insights with you in just literally we've just hit the one hour time slot. Uh, imagine what you can pick up from his uh, wonderful books that are on Amazon and the programs that are on his uh, website. So once again, thank you very much indeed, William. It's been a pleasure.